this week I've been praying a lot for you, praying a lot for me, praying a lot for us. Uh, uh, I had the privilege this week of just getting away with the Lord uh, by myself for much of the week, praying through our fall ministry, uh, praying for what God has for us next. Um, I am so excited about this church. Is God doing something here? I'm convinced he is, and I'm convinced that there's more to come. And so I, uh, as I got away, um, really wanted to have not the responsibility of studying for a, a sermon. So I asked a mentor of mine, a dear friend, someone who's a friend of ours at Orangewood. And if you've been around here for a while, uh, you'll know him. Uh, Dr. Jim Cofield, uh, married to Mona. They have two boys, uh, one right now in Rwanda, uh, Pierce, uh, also Skyler. But scripture says this, that the wise walk with the wise that we should seek counsel from those who love Jesus, that it maybe have gone a little bit before us. You can see the gray in his beard he has. Uh, Every Monday morning, I have breakfast with Jim. And uh, every Monday, we just kind of tell our stories together. And he is a dear friend, a mentor of mine, uh, someone who keeps me in line, someone who prays for me and my family regularly. So it is an honor of mine to introduce to you uh, my good friend. Uh, He is head of uh, the counseling department out at RTS, uh, not only a great counselor himself, but a counselor trainer. Jim, thanks for coming. Thanks for opening up God's word. Love you. Go get him. Give him Jesus. I wish at least some of that was true, but it's really not. Um, it is. It is a privilege to be here, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, I think I'm going to go and learn how to sing after listening to the worship team, but I won't make you all listen to that. Um, This morning, we're going to look at a passage together that when you first hear it, you'll say, oh, great, finally a sermon that has nothing to do with me. Uh, It's typically called the parable of the rich fool, and it's found in Luke 12, and I'd like to read it for you now, and I'd like us to think about it together. Some of you, when you hear the idea of the the rich fool, you say, well, I might be foolish, but I'm not rich, so therefore I'm off the hook today, and and I would just suggest to you that... um, that maybe God would let us hear it with new ears this morning uh, as, we're, as we're here together. So why don't I read the passage? It's, uh, it's found in Luke 12. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first verse in the chapter. Then I'm going to skip to the parable, which is in verse 13. So it starts in Luke 12. I'm going to read the first verse. It says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be in your guard against the yeast of Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I'm going to skip to verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be in your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store for my, my, all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, they, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. 
if we could, before we talk about the parable and before we talk about what God might have for you and I, why don't we talk to him? Uh, if we could pray together. Dear Father, um, you are good and we are foolish. Would you somehow meet us this morning in a new and a fresh way? Would your spirit continue to blow through here like a mighty wind and would you leave no stone unturned in us as we, as we look at our life before you? Father, we do celebrate the fact that, that our sins are forgiven. You've saved us, that we are your very children. But Father, you know your children well and you know every person in this room You know the people that fought on their way here. You know the couples that are struggling and just hanging on. You know the people that are doubting. You know the, well, you know us all. And the fact that you've woven history together to bring us all in this place and this time tells us that you're up to something. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see the glimmer in your eyes and the the twinkle in your eyes as we think about what you might be up to in our lives at this time in our church, our families, and our homes. So, Father, take us this morning. Father, the people in this room that are comfortable, would you disrupt them? The people in this room that feel too disrupted, would you comfort them? We pray in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm not going to argue with all the people that over history have named this parable the parable of the rich fool. But it really isn't a parable told to a rich person. And it's not a parable told um, for a rich person. It's a parable told to just regular people like you and I. Talk to us more about wearing jeans on the pulpit. I mean, you're looking very nice today, and generally our pastors can wear jeans. Talk more about that. Um, Okay, I'll I'll be glad to. A little awkward, wasn't it? little awkward, right in the middle, we're talking about something, somebody stands up and asks a kind of a somewhat personal question, and, and for a moment, you all were a little worried about Tony, you thought, <laughs> visitors are saying, wasn't he the guy that greeted us? <laughs> now, the reason I asked Tony to do that is that that's what took place that day. As Jesus was teaching, look at the text, there were thousands of people. So much so that the text says people were trampling over each other. You know, sometimes we forget what it, was, what it might have been like. We, we don't let our imagination go to think what it might have been like in those days when people were hearing for the first time this radical idea that God was not mad at them, that God was redeeming them to himself. This sense that, and, and, and so people were just clamoring to hear the words of Jesus. And in the text it says thousands and people were trampling over each other to hear Jesus. So if you can imagine the scene is a scene with full, a sea of people all listening and Jesus is teaching. And in the middle of his teaching, somebody stands up and says, hey, wait a minute. Would you tell my lousy brother to give me my part of the inheritance? You know, I don't know about you, but all of a sudden that story seems pretty vivid. I mean, you can imagine what you imagined as Tony stood up and started questioning something. Most of you went, my goodness, what's Cofield going to do with that? Well, I'm not much of a teacher, but Jesus, the master teacher, takes that moment and makes that moment pregnant with eternity as he, as he speaks to that individual about something that affects both him, but then everybody else that was listening, and you and I. And so the, the moment is, a, is a ma- an amazing moment. It's an amazing moment because 
It's an unexpected moment. And in the middle of this huge crowd, someone interrupts Jesus and says, Hey, life's not fair. My brother is cheating me out of my inheritance. Now, if you know anything about the old inheritance laws, which, you know, I guess you, if you, just kind of, if you, you may or may not, you know that in, the, in, the, in those days, inheritance was given, the, the executor of the will, if you will, would be the oldest son. And so chances are, and the older son was given a double portion of the, of the estate, and then he gave the rest out as, as, was, as was appropriate. But as the executor, he had the right to do that when he felt like it was the right time. And so he had a lot of authority. My guess is this is the younger brother. We don't know that. But my guess is we've got the, young, the younger brother in the crowd saying, my older brother, he's not giving me my share. He's not, he's not giving me my share. Would you tell him to do that? Now, all of a sudden, whatever Jesus says next seems to, make sense, make, seems to be important to me because I understand clenching my fist and saying to God, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair. I don't think I'm getting my fair shake. Why is this happening? It should happen this way. I mean, I, just confessions. Yesterday I was at the, the swimming Special Olympics over at Lake Brantley High School. And my son was swimming in the eighth heat in the Special Olympics. And, and he was swimming, and they, there's three people in the heat, and they start, and they, it's, they're going, they're going, and he was, he was going to win. And that's not that important to him, but I found that that was starting to become pretty important to me. <laughs> and so I start cheering, young, keep swimming, keep swimming. And, and somewhere in the middle, he, he started looking around a little bit at the, people, the, the other two people swimming with him, and, and, and so he started slowing down. And I said, no, keep swimming. And, and then he gets to the finish line, and he's a half second behind the person that won. And what I'd say as we're walking away, I'd tell my wife, I don't think she hit the butter in the right time. I think he could have won it. Now, of course, you all are better people than I am. I understand that. <laughs> you at the Special Olympics would just be saying, well, aren't we glad we're competing? But not me. I'm, I'm mad that we're a half second behind, and I know we got cheated. I know that that volunteer cheated and didn't press the button quick enough because he should have won. You ever that way? Do you ever find yourself with your hand clenched at God saying, I don't think it's fair. I don't think I'm getting a fair shake. Now, it's amazing how often this takes place in families more than anywhere else. And that's the scene we have here. A a man is mad at his brother. And and how many of us know families, maybe in our own families, where we haven't talked to our brother or sister for years? Or people have not talked to their their children or families are, 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 are disjointed. And one person's got their hand clenched saying, it's not fair. And the other says, well, it's not fair. And so all of a sudden, this story is not about a rich fool, but a, a person just like you and I, who stands up in the middle of this huge, and it was such a big deal to him that he didn't mind that it was embarrassing, that it was at the wrong time and the wrong place, and that Jesus was teaching. He interrupts him and says, solve this problem for me, Preacher. You ever feel that way? Well, if you do, if you ever have, if you ever felt like life's not very fair and you're not getting a fair shake, then I think you can hear in this, I think this text is for you. 
I think there's something for us. Now, before we look at the text, there's a couple of sidebars I want to run down really quickly. And, uh, and, then, and then after that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, about how he is a fool. But not about his riches, but about other things. The first sidebar I'd like to tell you, I'd like to show you or discuss with you, is the way Jesus deals with the, the, way Jesus deals with the situation. I've spent most of my life fixing what's not the problem. Um, I, I, try to, I, I look at the symptom, and I try to fix something by looking at the symptom. And so I'm too angry. And so I say, I'm not going to yell anymore, I'm not going to yell anymore, I'm not going to yell anymore. But I never face my heart that is demanding that I want life on my terms. Or I just I try to solve the problem by looking at the symptom and not looking at the reality of what's underneath in my heart. And so I spend so much of my life solving what's not the problem. And I think what's really interesting in this is Jesus chooses to not solve the person's problem, but speak to the heart of what's underneath. I think that's really kind of fascinating. So often what we want Jesus to do is is deal with the symptoms of our lives. Make my life more comfortable. Make me feel better about this. Make them change, have them change their behavior. Get somebody else. So often people come to counseling and basically they just want one of two things. They want me to help change the circumstances. I can't do that. Or they want me to change the way they feel. I can't do that. So don't go to me for counseling. (laughs) But that's what they want. But you can't solve those things. You can't fix those things. And so Jesus, instead of kind of being pulled into, I'll live on the surface and try to give you the three steps to deal with a brother who doesn't give you money. I'll give you the five steps of how to deal with money. He could have easily said, Have you not read back in Deuteronomy where we give the rules about how to deal with inheritance? I mean, that would have been a good preacher way to deal with it. But instead, Jesus chooses not to deal with the symptom and chooses to deal with the problem. What's underneath? That's the first thing I want you to note, is God's radical commitment to deal not just with symptomology, but with the causal issues. So often we spend most of our time kind of trying to kill a tree by pulling off its fruit. Or we look at the fruit and really, we're ignoring the shoots and the roots. And God has a way of dealing, and God wants to deal with the roots and not just the fruit. Does it make sense? First thing I want you to note. Second thing I want you to note is look at the way Jesus deals with conflict. I, I've got a funny feeling that God doesn't see conflict the way you and I do. Most of us see conflict as one of us needs to win, one of us needs to lose. I was talking about counseling a minute ago, and I, I do counseling a little bit for a living sometimes. And, and I find that often the people come in for counseling, they basically want a referee. They basically want me to take sides. They basically want me to say, okay, I've heard your side, and I've heard your side. And, what you, and, and you need me to kind of almost 10 yards, illegal arguing, you know, um, five yards, selfish parenting, you know, something. I, I don't know. And, and they want me to kind of be an arbitrator or a judge, if you will. And they want me to solve the conflict by calling one a winner and one a loser. Now, I like the way that, that, that there may be something more important than winning and losing in conflict. I've often wondered why. I mean, I work with theologians all the time, and I often wonder why good, godly people can look at the same passages and come to some diff- such different conclusions. And why would God allow that? Why would a God allow a godly person who loves God and has studied his whole life to look at a passage and come to one conclusion, and someone who's just as godly, loves God with everything in them, look at that same passage 
and come up with a different conclusion. I mean, is God not capable of, of, of bringing them to the same place in the same passage? Of course he is. Was God not capable of revealing his word in such a way there would there be no controversy whatsoever? Of course he could have done that. So why would he choose to allow there to be the potential for conflict within our body? Well, maybe it's because in a fallen world, conflict's inevitable, and he wants to see the world to see the difference. I mean, remember what Jesus said about, by this they'll know you are mine, by the love you have for each other? So maybe in God's economy, the goal of conflict is not winning or losing, but understanding. Maybe in God's economy, the idea of, of conflict is not winning or losing, right or wrong, as much as it is as understanding, and therefore then loving. I wonder if God allows there to be such conflict because he wants a world that's inevitably going to have conflict in a, in, with, with sin everywhere. I wonder if he doesn't allow that so that the world can see the difference between the way Christians deal with conflict and the way the world does. Sadly, I don't think we're doing that well. But I do think that's, that may well be his intent. So that's the second sidebar. Notice the way he didn't choose to resolve the conflict directly by saying by going back and saying, well, what does it say in Deuteronomy? He instead chooses to try to deal with something deeper, something in the heart. Third little sidebar. My goal is to do all these little sidebars, and we'll just, you know, and then at 1245, <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, all of a sudden, people start leaving. It won't. It, no, Jeff told me clearly that at 1230, I needed to finish. All right. Um, and by the way, it is a little bit intimidating to be here when Jeff's here. Usually when I've come, it's Jeff's gone. And I really have just such respect for Jeff and really enjoy him as both a friend, as a pastor, a teacher. And uh, it was a teeny bit intimidating to be here with Jeff's here because I know he's the person who usually fills this pulpit. And so um, it's, it's, it really is an honor to be here. Back to the text. That was a sidebar that is not in the text, by the way. <laughs> um, hey, notice I've talked about the goal of conflict. Uh, there's a really interesting phrase in there that says, be, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I just thought I'd just, let's give us, just for the rest of this morning, let's get a working definition of greed. Greed is the idea that I want more than I deserve or more than I need. Greed is just a sense that I want more than I deserve or more than I need. Well, I just kind of put all of us in the same bucket. I think that's kind of almost most of us by definition. What's really interesting is all of us imagine ourselves, if we had lots of resources, when we imagine ourselves being rich or having lots of resources, we imagine ourselves incredibly generous. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody who's bought a lottery ticket say something like, you know, if I win a billion dollars, what I'm going to do, and then they tell you all the great things they're going to do. Now, it's funny, in the research about, the research about moral development, they find that People don't usually, when they have the opportunity, do what they say they're going to do. But, a lot of, but, but if you look at the heart of people, when they think about what would it mean to be rich, it would be, I would be somebody who would share. It would be somebody that would give. The minute when Jesus, at the end of this passage, when Jesus says he wants you to be rich for God, rich toward God, well, think about what does that mean to be rich toward God and to share, be willing to share him. But that's, that's, that's moving ahead just a minute. So the, the, the point I'd like to take just a second is, is the idea of greed. What's really fascinating is that most of us don't believe what the Bible teaches us about resources. Most of us believe that if I just had more, I'd be happier. 
Now, what's really fascinating is secular research says that's not true. Now, we know the Bible says it's not true, but since most of us don't really believe the Bible, let me tell you what secular research says. What secular research says is that once someone reaches above the poverty line, you cannot predict their happiness based on their finances. So, well, that's not true because if I just had another X number of dollars, I'd be much happier. That's not what the research shows. The research even shows that one year after a catastrophic event, if you were to take, if you were to take people who won the lottery and put them in a group, and they did this, and people who had a catastrophic accident where they became paralyzed and put them in a group, right after the event, you could tell which group they were in by doing a, a happiness index, by saying, you know, which, you know, how happy are you? You could say, well, the people that were happier were in this group that had won the money. The people in this group were less happy. A year later, you could not predict which group they were in by their happiness. Because research says that once you get over the poverty line, once you get over your basic needs being met, happiness is not correlated with finances. Well, that's fascinating. Most of us don't want to believe that. But it's true. And so the idea of greed, to be careful, Jesus is really aware that most of us sell ourselves for something short. The problem in life, most of you should not be afraid that you'll, that you'll try something and fail. Because we'll all do that. Your great fear should be that you'll succeed at something that doesn't really matter. And that's what most of us do. We succeed at something that doesn't really matter. We think, if I just had this, I would be happy. And then when you get to this, you're not really that much happier. And then you, just, then you put another, well, and this. Well, but I didn't anticipate this being a part of it. And so there's this sense of, there's just always this dread of, and that's that idea of greed. I have to have more. I have to have more. I have to have more. And I need more than I deserve, more than I, I actually need. And there's never enough. So that's the, kind of the warning of greed that we find in this passage. Happiness um, is not near as elusive. Um, the, the, the research would say, and I think this, this fits Scripture very well, is that, that happiness doesn't make itself a, a good goal. It makes it, it's more of a result of how someone lives. You know, when somebody says, my goal is to be happy, they're not going to be very happy. It's an elusive goal. But, but happiness comes from people who have strong relationships with God and with others. And, well, it doesn't come from just acquiring stuff. So that's our sidebars. Now let's look at the, the text together. First of all, notice that I don't think he is foolish because of his money. There's, I'm going to talk about our rich, our parable, and I'm going to suggest to you that he is foolish. I mean, God calls him foolish, but I don't think he's foolish because he planned. Obviously, this is somebody who's very strategic and he's planning. I don't think that's what made him foolish. I don't think God's against people who plan. I'm kind of, I, I was wishing that God would be against that. That would be a great opportunity for me to, to continue to keep my desk a mess and be completely out of control in terms of schedule, but that is not what this is teaching. It does not teach that, it's a, that, that God is he's foolish because he plans. He's not foolish because he's successful. The Bible's full of examples of people that are poor and are people who are rich. The issue of his foolishness is not the fact that he's been successful. It, it, I, I don't think, although there are great warnings about wealth in Scripture, he's not foolish because of his money. Richness does, isn't what makes him foolish. And so, when we talk about what makes this guy foolish, I would just suggest to you that three things that don't make him foolish are the fact that he planned, the fact that he was strategic, the fact that he was successful, 
or the fact that he had money. Those aren't the things that made him foolish. So I'm going to suggest at least four ways in which he is foolish. And this week, when you study this passage, you might come up with more. But I'm going to suggest at least four ways in which he's foolish. The first way I would suggest that he's foolish is foolish when it comes to relationships. Uh, in this passage, the, uh, I was reading uh, Bailey's book on uh, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, and he, he looks at the parables as a, as a Middle Easterner would. And let me just read what he says about this text. Literally translated, the text says, talking about the parable and the rich, the rich man and the parable, that he dialogued with himself. In the Middle East, this is a very sad scene because in villages, people make decisions about important topics after long discussions with their friends. Families and communities in villages are tightly knit together. Everybody's business is everybody else's business. Even trivial decisions are made after hours of discussion with family and friends. But this man appears to have no friends. He lives in isolation from the human family around him. And the people listening to the parable that day would have noticed how odd it was that he just said I over and over again. If you look at the parable, over ten times it says either I or my. I will do this. I will do this. It even, like it says, literally, it's, I, I, he dialogued with himself. There's no mention of his family. There's no mention of his friends. There's no mention of the co-workers. The, I mean, the people that work for him. There's no, no mention of his community There's no mention of anyone else in his life. And so the hearers of this, the hearers of this parable, all the people, the thousands that were listening to this man after this man stood up and said, settle the problem between me and my brother. As Jesus told the story, would have thought, that's odd. That's a story of someone with no friends. That's someone who's not connected to anybody. They're relationally bankrupt. The first way I would suggest that this man is foolish is that he is foolish in his understanding of relationships. You and I are relational beings. We're made as image bearers of God. And as image bearers of God, we are made to be in relationship with one another. When I I think about just measuring what people are like in terms of is somebody healthy or not healthy, one of the ways to think about that is just I measure, do they live in the truth? Because... Often I don't live in the truth. I, I sometimes will look in the mirror and say I'm a slim 190 with a full head of hair. Um, and the second thing I look at when I'm talking to people about are they healthy people is what are their relationships like? Because an image bearer of God ought to have relationships that are growing and there ought to be people in their life. It's because of sin that we are afraid of relationships. It's because sin entered in that we realize people can hurt us. But we live in that tension, do we not? The tension between wanting relationship and not wanting to be hurt. But it's that wanting relationship that is a sign of a redeemed soul. It is living in relationships. And so what's the problem? What makes this man foolish? Well, I would suggest that the first thing that makes him foolish is he's relationally bankrupt. He has a foolish view of relationships. He's a lonely and isolated man who thinks life is for about him. He has a wrong view or a foolish view of relationships. Second thing I would suggest that he has foolish view of is time. He believes that his time is his and belongs to him and that he's setting the stage. You know, all you have to do is, is look in, in James, James, fourth chapter of James, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year here, 
carry on our business and make money. Why do you not, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's just a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live this way or do that. By the way, have you ever run into somebody who's kind of read that verse and they get so legalistic about it that everything they say, then they go, Lord willing. They drive me crazy. You know, it's like, let's get lunch, Lord willing. Um, and I'm, I'm saying, well, Lord may be willing, but I'm not willing to eat with you. I'm, you know, the waiter comes and they say, what would you like? I say, well, if I don't die before the tea gets here, Lord willing, uh, I'd like tea. <laughs> and as much as that sort of person drives you crazy, there really is a heart in that that says they begin to understand that time doesn't belong to you and I. Nothing's guaranteed to you and I. Yet, we'll probably live a while and I'm not going to try to manipulate you and tell some story. You know, we've all been in a sermon before where the pastor kind of tries to manipulate and get everybody to get really committed. And they'll say something like, I'm going to tell you about little Bobby LaRue. And then they point at the seat and they say, little Bobby LaRue sat right there six Sundays ago. And he said he could wait to follow Jesus. And then Bobby LaRue got hit by a bus on the way home. And then they look at you and say, don't be Bobby LaRue. Well, I'm not going to try to manipulate you and try to get you to worry about Bobby LaRue because I don't know a Bobby LaRue. And, but I do know your time doesn't belong to you. I do know that time goes so quickly. It was just, it seems like just a vapor ago that my boys were just babies. And now one's off in Rwanda and we're scared to death because he hadn't called us yet. We bought him an international phone. (laughs) The last thing I said was, call your mother as soon as you land in Kigali. That was two days ago. We know he's fine. But it's a vapor. It seems like a few years ago we were just changing diapers. And now he's halfway around the world. Time. It's a vapor. It's a mist. You don't own it. And for some of you, it seems like life's gone too long. And for some of you, it seems like it's gone so quick. But it is not yours to wield and it's not yours to own. And the problem with what made this guy a fool was not just his view of relationships. Of course he was foolish because he thought people didn't matter. Of course he was foolish because he was relationally bankrupt. But he was also foolish because he thought time belonged to him. And he thought he had all of it in the world. I don't know who you need to call. And you don't need to call them right after you leave here. But this week, I'll bet you there's somebody that you need to call. I'll bet you there's an old friend, a family, somebody that you ought to call and just say, it's been too long. We've had too many bad things go under the water. I just want to call and tell you that those things don't matter near as much as I once thought. Why? Time doesn't belong to you. In the parable, we find the foolish man thought that time belonged to him and he had all the time he wanted. But he didn't. That's why Jesus, Jesus in the story, he's foolish because his time was up. So not only is he foolish because he had a foolish view of relationships, not only is he foolish because he had a foolish view of, of time, thirdly, he was foolish because he had a foolish view of possessions and purpose. 
he believed the goal of possessions was for himself. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, listen, I'm going to tear down everything. I'm going to get me a bunch of big barns. And after I finish getting those big barns, what I'll do is I'll have enough. And once I have enough, I'm going to be able to take it easy and not work. And then once I just kind of sit back and not work, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that's the way my life goes. And so he believed the purpose of his stuff was for him. And, and his, the purpose of his life was to make himself comfortable. And the purpose of work was so that he would not work. Now, that sounds kind of American. But there's a foolishness to that. Your life is worth so much more than just what you can do for yourself with it. I mean, what a, what a successfully wasted life. If all you've done is you've collected stuff for you so that you can eat, drink, and be merry. For you. There's no mention of anyone else. There's no mention of his family. There's no mention of his community. He has an odd view of how a life ought to be lived. He believes a life ought to be lived simply for himself, for his pleasure, for his, glory, for his own glory. You know you really only have two choices in life. I mean, I don't mean to make life sound simple, but you can either make yourself the star of your story, the Jim Cofield story. Not a lot of people are going to be going to that movie. And you know, my story will last a few years. Maybe 70. Maybe my kids will remember me. Me two generations from now, no one will. One of the amazing things about the old books in the library at RTS is how many great Christian people aren't even remembered anymore and their books aren't even read and there's dust all over them. You can live for what you want. You can make yourself the star of your story. Go for it. But it'll be quickly forgotten. Or you can realize there's a greater story being told. A story of redemption of creation. The problem is that story already has a star. And that star is Jesus Christ. But you're given a part in that story. And so you can either have your own little story that'll last about 70 years and be gone in a vapor, or you can connect to the bigger story, the story of God's glory and the story of God's purposes and and, and the story of God's redemption of his creation back to himself. And that can be a part because you're a part of that story. And he'll tell his story of redemption through your very life. He'll retell the story through your life. And all of a sudden, your life's not really your life. It's his life being told again in a story. Wow. You see, that's what life's supposed to be about. You see, it's not supposed to be about me working hard enough so I'll get enough so I don't have to do anything so I can just sit and not talk to people and just eat, drink, and be married by myself. (laughs) You see, he was foolish. He was foolish because he was foolish about relationships. He was foolish about, he, he was foolish about the way he saw time, but he was so foolish about the way he saw his possessions and the way he saw purpose in life. You see, God's inviting you to have a much more purposeful life than just collecting stuff. I mean, there is so much more to... to, to you, do you realize that every moment you live, every moment is pregnant with the possibility of eternity. Every relationship you have is ordained by a sovereign God and you can touch eternity with the way you deal with the people around you. Do you realize that, that 
if, you get, if we believe that, and none of us really believe that, but if we did, that's what the Bible teaches, we'd live so differently. Because every moment matters. And every relationship matters. And every interaction matters. Because all of it, all of it touches eternity. All of it touches eternity. And you go, wow. So it's not just about me. You see, he was foolish because he believed that possessions were basically for him and his purposes were basically just for him. Lastly, I would suggest to you that he was foolish because because he didn't live by eternal values. If... um, you know, you know, it's interesting. Usually this parable is used when churches are trying to raise money. You know that. And um, usually, the, usually the pastor pulls this out and they say, are you building barns for yourself? Or are you going to build barns for the kingdom of God? Pass out the cards. <laughs> and the problem with that and then that's, I mean, that's not a bad use of this, I guess. But the problem with that is, is that it's kind of messed up the idea of stewardship for us. And that we kind of think stewardship is giving God back 10%. And the problem is, the reason this man's foolish is he believed things belong to him. Everything, we are just stewards. Everything really belongs to God. We, we should, why should we take care of this earth? Because we're stewards of the earth. Why should we parent our children well? Because they don't belong to us. They belong to him. We're stewards. He's lent them to us. We're all stewards. Your resources, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. And, and it's so clear in the parable. We're Look at the very beginning of the parable. When Jesus says that why was this guy successful? I mean, clearly he worked hard. But what does it say? Just nod. I'll say something, and you just kind of nod at this point. Okay, this is a good moment. Uh, it says that the land produced. I mean, Jesus was very clear in the way he presents this material. He didn't say, and the guy worked hard, and because of that, he had lots of money, and now he needs to give it back to the church. What he said was the land produced. He was blessed. He was given. Out of the land came good crop. You see, the idea is that you need to understand the idea of stewardship. Stewardship is about understanding who owns it, and that you have been given the privilege of borrowing it. I've never really understood libraries. I, I, I don't, I, I, it, it's just an amazing thing. You can just walk in, you can show a library card, you can take it out, and you think, this is great. I'm, and, and they don't charge you anything. It, it's just, unless you don't bring it back, and then they charge you stuff, and they follow you for years. But the, um, But it's just a great system. It's kind of an idea of, Hey, we really own these things. You want to borrow them? Come on in. They don't really belong to you, but you can, you can read them. I mean, you, you're all, I mean, as a Christian, you have a library card, and everything you own belongs to him. And he's just lent it to you. Your wife, your husband, your children, your house, your job, the fact that you don't have a job. All of it belongs to him. And he invites you to be a steward of that. What a different way of seeing the world. You see, the problem with this this man was that he was not just foolish with relationships. 
not just foolish about time, not just foolish about purpose and possessions. He was foolish because he did not have eternal values. Look at the last thing Jesus says to him, or that said in the parable. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? It's really interesting. There is that issue of, remember, he's talking to a person who's thinking life's not fair. He's not getting his fair share. And then there's the reality of who's going to finally get all the things you've been fighting over? If you were to lose your brother, who's going to get all the things you've been fighting over? But then, then Jesus ends a parable with something very powerful. He says, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself. And listen to this phrase, because this phrase, for the last two weeks as I've thought about this passage for our time together, this phrase has haunted me. But is not rich toward God. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And I've thought, I've been haunted by the idea of what does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean to be, and I've thought about in a secular definition of kind of rich, and that's what you invest in. What does it mean to invest, if you will, yourself into God? There's one definition about wealth uh, that some of the commentators use and say that a biblical definition of wealth has to do with sharing that a biblical definition of wealth has to do with sharing. And I thought about that and tried to apply that to the idea of being rich toward God, the idea of, of sharing who we are in Christ with one another, sharing our faith, sharing the love and the hope and the grace of God to one another. That, that, that To be rich toward God is to be someone who lives out his graciousness, who lives out his love, who lives out his mercy, who lives out his purposes with his neighbors and with his friends and with his family. The idea of being rich toward God. I, I thought about what I'd like to, what I'd like to leave you with in, in terms of thinking about this passage. And what I think I'd like to leave you with is I want you to be haunted as well. I want you to be haunted by the phrase rich toward God. The goal of this sermon isn't to make you feel guilty about anything. I don't think Jesus tried to make the guy feel guilty. And you know, my guess is the older brother was in the crowd too. I mean, my guess is the older brother was about four people over. And, and this guy just had his hand up. And because in that, in that day, even though there were thousands of people there, I'll bet you a lot of people, when as soon as the guy raised his hand, they went, oh no, we know what he's going to bring up. He's going to bring up his brother right here in front of everybody. And Jesus, the master teacher, the master teacher took that moment when somebody thought life was all about getting more and turned it into a story about instead of being foolish, about being wise. Don't be foolish about relationships. Learn from our fool. Don't be foolish about your time. Learn from our fool. Don't be foolish about your possessions and your purposes in life. Learn from our fool. Don't be rich for yourself and yourself's sake. But instead, men and women of Orangewood, 
be rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we are poor in so many ways. We're so much more like the foolish man in the crowd and so much more like the foolish man in the parable than we are the way you have called us and are inviting us to be. But this morning, would you haunt us this week? Would you remind us this week? Would you capture our very, our thoughts this week with the idea of being rich toward you? Father, no matter where the economy is, no matter where we are with our jobs, no matter where we are with our homes, no matter where we are with our mortgages, it is possible for each person in this room to be rich toward you. And so this week, at this time in our lives, would you challenge us and change us? And would you make us rich toward you? We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If the ushers will come with the uh, pledge cards. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Thank you, Jim. Let's stand for the benediction. Remember, come back tonight. Come back and celebrate with us. May the Lord God bless you. May he bless you with his presence and his love and his mercy. May the Lord God keep you, hold you in his arms. May the Lord God lift up his countenance upon you to remind you that you're yours and you're precious in his sight and he loves you. May the Lord God bring you peace, peace from knowing that you are his and he does love you. May he lift up his countenance and give you peace and joy as you go as wise children in Christ. Amen. And go in his peace.